Well, good morning, and welcome to the live stream for Philida Bible Church for May 17th. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Looking forward to uh, getting into our Bibles together, and we're going to have some worship music. Uh, and like I have uh, tried each week, want to encourage you to uh, make this part of a larger in-home worship experience, uh, since we're not able to gather face-to-face right now, and we're not sure when exactly we'll be able to do that. Uh, make the most of this time. Uh, there's some links you can click on for some additional content. There's uh, some songs that are chosen to go with the theme for today, and you can listen to them if you don't know them, or sing along if you do. Uh, take some time and pray. Take some time, uh, set aside an offering. Um, just make the most of the opportunity. D- do the kinds of things you'd do if we were all together face-to-face. And uh, keep praying that, that will, uh, we'll find out <laughs> when we can do that again and still working on preparations for that. And as soon as we know more, we will let you know. Right now I want to pray and then we will have some worship music and then we'll get into our Bible. So let's, let's pray together. Gracious Father, thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. Uh, Lord, it's a, it's a good day, and I'm grateful for your, your gifts, uh, grateful for the people who are here that we could do this live stream. I'm grateful for everybody that's tuning in. Pray, Lord, that you would make our time together meaningful. Uh, pray that you would speak to us, that you would call forth worship from our hearts. And Lord, if there's anybody tuning in that hasn't yet come to that place of putting their faith in Jesus, that today might be a, a step in that direction, you would draw them. Lord, so we want to come near to you now and pray that you would help us do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we come in our journey through uh, the book of Hebrews to chapter 5. I just want to give you an idea of where we're going. Uh, if you saw the title for today's message, it's... Um, basically wanting to draw near, draw near to the throne of grace. Last time we concluded with the end of chapter 4, verse 16, which says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so this is this exhortation to come near to God's throne and and receive the the grace, the mercy that we need because of Jesus, because of all that he has done to be our great high priest. And because of what he's done, we ought to come with confidence, without hesitation, and, and draw near to God. Uh, for this grace that's freely made available to us in Jesus. And I pointed out last time that this verse, verse 16, isn't a suggestion. It's actually a command. So drawing near to God's throne of grace is, is something we ought to do. We should do this. Uh, because if we, if we stay back, if we... Uh, if we don't come to him, that would actually be an act of unbelief, a refusal to trust him 
and come to him in spite of all that he has done for us. But the writer doesn't leave it there at a command. Um, he, he doesn't just stop with saying, you know, hey, uh, let us draw near because that's the right thing to do, and so you should do it. No, he actually goes on here in chapter 5, and he tells us why we should want to do that. Why we should want to come to Jesus, our great high priest, to receive all of the mercy and help that we need. And I just love that about the Bible. I love it that, that God's Word is not simply a collection of commands, you know, telling us what to do and what not to do, uh, as, if, as if God just says, jump, we say how high, and that's it. That's it. End of story. No, the Bible's not like that at all. Uh, God could have made it that way. He could have just given us a list of commands and we would be totally obligated to obey it because he's God and we're not. Uh, he's creator. We're creation. Um, he always knows what's right to do. We often don't. So there are commands, but those commands are always part of something much larger. Pages and pages of historical narrative, stories, uh, poetry, parables, promises. His commands have promises attached to them. Uh, prophecy, songs, poetry, proverbs. And it's all woven together like a beautiful tapestry. And when we look at this tapestry, what we see is an awesome and glorious God doing awesome and glorious things. Like creating us, creating you and me in His image to reflect His glory, His beauty. Uh, we are made for relationships, loving relationships with Him and with one another. Uh, we see Him filling the world with good things, providing us with everything we could possibly need. And then, when we see humanity fall into rebellion and, and bring evil and death in this world, then we see God showing himself gracious and merciful as, as well as righteous. And then we see all of these incredible works of redemption, all of these things that God does to call people back into relationship with himself and overcome this, this separation, this distance caused by our sin. So there's so much more to God's word than just commands. Now, it's true there is an ought to about drawing near to God's throne of grace. Uh, it, it is the right thing to do. It, we ought to do that. But in addition to the ought to, there are some amazing reasons to want to, to desire to draw near. Because not only is Jesus 
the Son of God, not only is he greatest in terms of authority, I mean, he's Lord. He has all authority in heaven and earth. Uh, He has every right to tell us what to do and to expect us to do it. But he's greatest not only in terms of his authority, he's greatest in every respect. Every respect we can think of, he's greatest. He's, He's good. He's wonderful. He's beautiful. You you just can pile up the adjectives. Following him is not simply correct. It's desirable. It's not only the right thing to do. It's the best thing to do for you and for me. And we're going to see that here in chapter 5. And so my hope for our time this morning is that as this chapter elaborates for us, on, on Jesus being our great high priest and, and what he's like in that role. Uh, it's my hope that you and I will really think about these things, think about these truths about Jesus, and we'll savor them, you know, taste them. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And that doing that, savoring, tasting that he's good, that will increase our desire to draw near to him regularly for all of the help, all of the mercy that we need. So, chapter 5, and we'll start at verse 1, and it says this, every high priest, here he's talking about the ordinary high priests that, that the Israelites had, every high priest is selected from among men, people, humanity, and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And he, the high priest, is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor upon himself, He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. Aaron was the first high priest. He was Moses' brother. So, Christ, Messiah, Jesus, Son of God, Messiah also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, or I think a better translation, although he was son, meaning son of God, Although he was son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Remember in the context of Hebrews, obeying him is talking about trusting him. Genuine faith that leads to doing what he says. And was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. 
So I want to just focus in on why you and I should want to draw near, why we should want to go to Jesus, our great high priest, and do that habitually, regularly, consistently, and ask him for all of the mercy and help that we need, because we need help. Uh, We need help to get right with God. We need help to be right with God, help to grow closer to him, help to live our daily lives the way he wants us to, help with all of those mundane parts of life, and then help, help to go through the very hardest times with hope, with joy and peace. You know, if you think of your heart as being like a, a furnace or a fireplace or, you know, a big fire ring where you're, you know, you, you put the wood on there and it flames up. And, and sometimes our hearts burn very hot and other times they grow cold. Well, if you think of these truths about Jesus here, there's at least four of them we're going to look at. And, and think of these as like fuel, for the fire of your heart that you can put there and just fan the flame and increase your heart's desire to draw near to Jesus and, and, and go to him for the help you need. So here, here's the first reason. His ego never gets in the way of helping us. His ego never gets in the way of helping us. Uh, That may sound a little weird. I I tried to think of a different way to say it, and maybe you'll come up with a better one. But here's what I mean by that. What I mean is, in helping us, he's not in it for for what's in it for him. It's, it's, It's not about his ego. In other words, he didn't become man and die for our sins in order to save us because he was on some kind of ego trip. Okay, and this is my takeaway from verse 5, where it says, Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming high priest. And what it means is, he was God-appointed, not self-appointed. And that's just like the high priests uh, that the Israelites had under the law of Moses, under the Old Covenant, these guys didn't run for office. You know, they, they weren't elected through voting or something. They, they were chosen by God. Uh, and that started with God choosing Aaron, Moses' brother, to be the first high priest. And then it continued with his descendants. You, you basically had to be born into that line to be high priest. And our writer here quotes from two psalms to show that 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 choosing, that appointing, is also true of Messiah to be our great high priest. So the first quote comes from Psalm 2, and it, God is saying, You are my son, today I have become your father. And we looked at this earlier in the series, this is Psalm 2. And here when it uses the word son, it's, it's really not talking mainly about the fact that Jesus is the eternal son of God, you know, the second member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's true, but that's really not the focal point here. The word son here is referring to God's 
chosen king. You know, God chose David and his descendants to be rulers over his people. And this psalm, in all likelihood, was recited by the people when a new king, when the next king became, uh, you know, basically took the throne and was anointed. That's how they uh, crown them, in effect. And, and this psalm would be recited, and the idea is that today God is saying to this one, you're now my son. You are the son of the household, of my household, to, to have authority over my people, to rule over them. And of course, Jesus, the Messiah, to whom this psalm ultimately points, uh, he is the ultimate son uh, in every sense. He is God's son, the king, God's ultimate king to rule over his people. And then the other quote is from Psalm 110, which takes that thought even further and reveals that Messiah would not only be king, he would also be priest. That is, he would not only rule over the people for God, he would actually represent the people to God. And this is so interesting because this represents a big change. This is a prediction in the Psalms, in the Old Testament, of this change that, that Messiah would be both king and priest because that's not how it was under the Old Covenant. Under the Law of Moses, uh, the king came from the line of David, which was the tribe of Judah. The priest came from the line of Aaron, which was the tribe of Levi. But this is going to be different. The Messiah, the one uh, who would rule over God's people, would also be priest to represent them to, God's, uh, to God. Now, there's a lot more to say about this, and we'll look at more of it later. Like, who is this Melchizedek guy, and why is Jesus' priesthood like his? But the point here, the point I want to make, is that in becoming our high priest, when Jesus became our high priest, the one who sits on God's throne of grace, the one we go to for help in time of need, the one who is our mediator, the one who makes us acceptable, fully acceptable to God, Jesus became that not in pursuit of his own glory but in obedience to the Father's will. And that's not only predicted in the Old Testament, as we've seen, the New Testament confirms this again and again. So Philippians 2.6 says, Christ Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider, did not regard equality with God, being worshipped as God, something to be seized, to be grasped, he didn't seize it, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And Jesus himself said in John eight fifty four, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. So Jesus wasn't pursuing his own glory. Now how does knowing that, how does that increase our desire to come to him for help? Well, just think about how 
utterly different this is from the saviors of this world, from other people who want the power and the position to help us. I mean, do you ever wonder if politicians do what they do because they genuinely want to help us? Or maybe are they more concerned about their own power and glory? But I don't really have to answer that. Um, are the people who want to sell us something to help us? You know, are, are they always looking out for your best interests? Or is it possible they're more interested in what benefits them? And I don't mean to say that it's wrong for people to act in their own interest. I mean, because we all do. And, and in some degrees, it's right that we do. But what I'm saying is, it makes it very difficult to know if someone who has the power to help you can always be trusted to act in your best interests. But that's never true with Jesus. It's never true when we come to him for the help we need. If you trust him to be your great high priest, if you trust him and you come to his throne of grace seeking mercy, seeking the help you need for life, you never have to wonder. You never have to wonder, uh, was he in this just for the money? Or is he in this for the power? Is he in this for the ego boost? Is he just wanting to make, you know, feel good about himself? No. Never. His motives are never mixed. When you come to him for help, you can be confident that he is absolutely committed to helping you experience God's highest and best purposes for your life. He did not become our Savior to satisfy his ego. But now, you know, it could raise a question. You could say, well, wait a minute. If Jesus knew, if he knew the Father was going to glorify him, because he had to know, he had to know what God's plan was, is that a problem? Was it selfish for Jesus to obey knowing what would happen? You know, selfish just isn't the right word for it. Think about it. What is it, what is it that brought Jesus the greatest honor? What is it that brought him the highest glory? Isn't it the fact that he was willing to die the most shameful death possible to rescue you and me from hell and give us everlasting joy and share his glory with us? Because the Bible says he will. We will share in his glory. We will participate in it. In other words, what glorifies him the most is to genuinely love us and act in our best interests. Regardless of what it costs him to do it. I, selfish just isn't the right word to describe that. So, you can always go to him with total confidence that he will be looking out for you. His ego doesn't ever get in the way. Here's another reason. <clears throat> we should want to go to Jesus 
because he knows. He knows what the very worst kind of pain feels like. You know, one of the awful things when you're really hurting, either physically or emotionally, is this fear that you're all alone in your suffering. That, that no one else really gets it. No one else really knows what it's like. Um, people who struggle with depression and anxiety, they often feel like, you know, the people around them who aren't depressed, who aren't anxious, well, they can't possibly relate to how they feel. Uh, I remember when I uh, was diagnosed with cancer, I remember looking around at, at the people who, who didn't have cancer around me and thinking, there's no way they can know how scary this is. They, they just can't relate. And before I had cancer, I didn't know. Uh, or people who, who just deal with intense physical pain. And some people deal with that all the time. Well, most of us don't have that. And so the people who do can feel very isolated and alone in their pain. And it can be very difficult to open up to others and ask them for help and share how you're feeling because you're afraid you have no idea. They, they, they have no idea of what you're going through. And actually, they might. Somebody might be going through the same thing you're going through or they've gone through it before. But because you don't know that, you can be afraid to open up and ask for help. That's never true with Jesus. It's just never true. We never have to wonder if he knows how, how badly it hurts. You know, physically, the pain of crucifixion is apparently one of the most intense pains possible. In fact, that the word excruciating that we use that actually comes from the Latin word for cross and crucify. Uh, crucifixion was so painful, it actually gave the world a new word to describe the most intense pain possible. But then beyond that, beyond the physical pain, the gospel writers make it very clear that Jesus suffered deep emotional agony. So in Mark 14.33, this is in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus and his disciples were there, and, and, and it's the night before the crucifixion. Jesus knows, he knows the cross is coming. And so in verse 33, it says this, And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Guys, I feel like I'm going to die from this, from how I feel. Or listen to Jesus on the cross when he's taken upon himself all of our sin, when he's experiencing all of the justice for all all of the sins that you and I commit. And he cries out. It says, uh, this is Matthew 27, 46. 
And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt completely alone. And see, that's what verse 7 is talking about here in Hebrews 5 when it says, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. He wasn't faking it. He wasn't acting. He knows what it's like to pray in absolute desperation. And we shouldn't rush past this. And we definitely should not think, oh, well, because Jesus is the Son of God, well, I'm sure his pain wasn't as hard for him to bear as our pain is for us to bear. No, actually, it was much worse. Physically, he had the same kind of nerves and skin and sensations that we do. So he would have felt pain exactly the way we do. But emotionally, emotionally, Jesus was the only human being. And remember, he became fully human. He was the only human being besides the very first man and the very first woman who has ever known a perfect relationship with God perfect connection, perfect intimacy with God. So when he, in some unexplainable way, experienced the feeling of complete separation from God, when all of the justice for humanity's sin was poured out upon him, that was a far worse pain than you and I have ever known. Jesus knows death in its fullest possible sense. If you and I trust him, we never will. We never will. So what does all this mean? It means he will always understand your pain. Even if no one else knows, even if no one else gets it, he will. And that's true even if your pain is not exactly the same as his because your pain can never be worse. He knows. He won't trivialize it. He won't dismiss it. So go to him. Go to him for mercy and help. Third reason, we should want to go to him because he knows how hard it can be to obey. He knows how hard it can be to obey. I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes doing what God wants us to do feels so incredibly difficult like forgiving people who have wronged us. And not just the ones who feel bad about it and apologize, but all those who wrong us, whether they feel bad or not. And, you know, even when we understand what forgiveness is, and it's often misunderstood, because it's not saying, you know, well, uh, we're, we're to pretend like it never happened, or, you know, we have to immediately trust people fully again. Uh, no, forgiveness, forgiveness means giving up the right to hurt somebody back. It means giving up the right to retaliate, to, to revenge. But even when you understand forgiveness, it can still be so hard. We need God's help to obey his hard commands. 
But can Jesus relate to that? Can you relate to that? Does he have any idea how hard obedience can be? Oh, yeah. Let's go back to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is Mark 14, 35. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour, meaning the cross, might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. I don't want to drink it. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He's talking about the cross there. He's talking about all the agony of bearing our sin. That was the Father's will. And in a very... That was the most difficult command that has ever been given. And Jesus obeyed. He obeyed, even though there's a very real sense in which he didn't want to. But he did want the Father's will. Why? Because he knew his Father. He trusted his Father to use the agony for glorious things and turn all of the pain into joy. He did want that. And so he gets it. He totally gets it. And just like with when we were talking about pain, don't make the mistake of thinking that because he's the son of God, he doesn't really know. You know, he never gave in to temptation, so he can't possibly know how hard it really is. Uh, wrong. <laughs> Actually, he knows it better than we do because he experienced temptation at full strength. You and I never have. Because if we ever full, experienced full strength temptation, we'd give in. It is by God's grace that he protects us from full strength temptation. He promises that. And by the way, I just want to point out that when it says he learned obedience from what he suffered, and when it says he was made perfect, that's not implying that there was any flaw, there was any moral defect in him of any kind. What it means is, is this, by obeying, actually obeying under intensely difficult circumstances, he came to know by experience, not just by intellect. There's a difference between head knowledge and, and experiential knowledge, right? He came to know by experience what obedience when you're suffering really feels like. That's what made him perfectly able to sympathize with us because he knows. He knows how hard it is. His obedience was real. It wasn't just theoretical. So, whenever there's a a time, whenever there's a part of you that does not want to obey, because you know what God wants you to do and it just frankly feels impossible, go to Jesus. Ask him to help you. He knows how hard it is. And if you'll rely on him and if you'll you'll cling to him and his promise that he will make it worth it, he will help you. One more. 
why we should want to go to Jesus for the help we need, because the help he gives never runs out. It never runs out. So verse 9 says, he is the source of eternal salvation. You know what eternal means? It's not this lockdown we're in. You know, this this uh, stay-at-home order. Feels eternal maybe by now, but it's not. It'll end. Uh, sitting in a dentist chair, that's not eternal. Uh Eternal is unlike anything you and I have ever experienced. The salvation, the help that Jesus gives is eternal. Nobody else can help you eternally. They can't. No matter how much we love someone, no matter how good our intentions are, no matter how hard we try, our help always has a limit even if we don't want it to. At some point, we run out of strength. We run out of patience. We run out of time. Or we run out of life. And we just can't be there to help anymore. Not Jesus. That never happens with Him. That never happens with the help He gives. He always has more. More strength more patience, more life, more grace, more mercy. Romans 8.38 Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because His salvation is eternal. It's eternal. He's not going to give up on us. He knows how weak we are. He can bring us to the finish line. So, never give up. Never give up. Never hang back. Never stop drawing near to the throne of grace for mercy and help in time of need. One of the things we've experienced in this pandemic is shortages. And you go to the store, there's something you need, it's not there. It's a shortage. Well, in Jesus' store, there are no shortages. Never runs out. And there's never, never a sign saying there, sorry, only one act of forgiveness. That's your quota. No, it never happens. His grace won't run out. His mercy won't quit. He will never say, to the one who has entrusted their life to him, the one who says, make me part of your family, make me part of your people, he will never say to that person, sorry, no more help for you. You've had enough. He won't ever do that. So I encourage you to think about these things, these truths. These are big chunks of seasoned firewood to put on the the flame in your heart to burn bright. Stoke the desire. Let's pray together. Father, how can we adequately say thanks for such a Savior, such a great high priest? Lord Jesus, how amazing it is 
You always know. You always understand. You always have grace for us. You're not in it for your ego. You're in it because you love us. That's amazing, Lord. It's so unlike anything we experience in this world. Help us believe it. And because we believe it, help us draw near. And I pray if there's anybody listening right now who who needs to draw near and they've been holding back because they're afraid or they're proud or whatever it might be, Lord, bring them near. You are an awesome Savior. Help us trust you. We pray in your name. Amen.